So after 13 years of obsessing over speed training, earning double-digit Division I scholarships, starting three years at the Division I level, getting an exercise science undergraduate degree, getting my CSCS, getting a doctorate in physical therapy, and over six years of speed coaching, helping others reach their genetic potential, their highest level of speed development, here are the five methods that I can tell you are no nonsense, no BS, straight to the point ways that help you get faster. Yeah, straight A student, but I'm friends with a cool kids. Following the rules in a rubric. Welcome to the GT Performance Podcast, where we have a conversation dedicated to long-term athlete development so you can help your athlete get faster, stronger, healthier, and prepared for real-world success. My name is Dr. Zach Geyser, and I am a sports performance coach, physical therapist, girl dad, and nerd about all things athletics. Today, we're going to hone in on everybody's favorite topic, the thing I hear the most about, the thing we're always looking to improve, speed. So let's get this conversation started. When I was coming out of high school, that's what I heard more than anything else. Zach, we love your tape, but we need to make sure you're fast enough. So I became obsessed with speed. I knew that I needed to be able to perform well on the stopwatch if I wanted to play at the level that I needed to play at. And that hasn't changed much. It's still the thing that everybody's obsessed with. Speed is by far the number one thing I hear about on our phone calls when I'm talking to parents and I'm talking to athletes about what they want to improve, what they need to get better at, what their limiting factor is. And for good reason. I mean, you need to be fast in order to compete in just about every sport. Speed is almost always an advantage. Now, obviously, at some point, you need to be able to control that speed. You need to be able to change direction fluently. And just running in a straight line isn't the only thing that matters. But it's still a pretty big component of just about every sport in some way, shape, or form. So after 13 years of obsessing over speed training, earning double-digit Division I scholarships, starting three years at the Division I level, getting an exercise science undergraduate degree, getting my CSCS, getting a doctorate in physical therapy, and over six years of speed coaching, helping others reach their genetic potential, their highest level of speed development, here are the five methods that I can tell you are no nonsense, no BS, straight to the point ways that help you get faster. There are two quick caveats. The first one being that these are in no particular order. Number one is not necessarily the number one way for you to get faster or the most important thing. These are just five ideas that are in random order. Um, What's going to be the best method for you? What's going to be the most important for you? Depends on your linchpin item, what's your limiting factor, and what's going to give you the biggest bang for your buck. And that's going to be unique to each individual. The second caveat is that these are primarily focused on acceleration development. So um, you have two different phases to a sprint. You've got acceleration and you've got max velocity. Acceleration is the beginning of a sprint. Those are the first few steps um, where you first start to come out. This is whenever somebody's leaned over a little bit more, um, they're horizontal. As they go further and further into the sprint, they're going to start standing up a little bit more. They're going to rise up. They're going to be a little bit taller. Their shins go from pistons at the beginning to being more cyclical at the end. Um, these are not two distinct phases. They're not categorical where you go straight from acceleration and then all of a sudden you're in max velocity. It's more along a continuum. Uh, but acceleration in general, those acceleration characteristics, acceleration properties are going to be more translatable to team sports. Uh, there's a lot of stopping, starting, changing direction. So you're constantly having to accelerate, decelerate, and re 
accelerate. So if we want to optimize team sport performance, so thinking football, basketball, baseball, softball, soccer, um, the vast majority of athletes that we deal with, we need to make sure that we prioritize acceleration development. Max velocity training absolutely has a place in time and we need to develop that. But if I'm having to choose between one or the other and I kind of am in this podcast, I'm going to choose acceleration development. So that's what we're going to focus on. The first item on our list serves as a nice bridge between our last couple of podcasts and this one because it's all about getting stronger in the weight room. So the first way to improve your speed is to get stronger in the weight room. Acceleration is all about how much force you can put in the ground and how quickly you can produce that force. So we know that strength is a measure of how much force you can produce. So if we get stronger, if we improve the overall amount of force that you produce, then you're going to be able to put more force in the ground. If you put more force in the ground, the ground's going to push you back harder. When the ground pushes you back harder, you go out further and you go out faster. You have more explosive steps. So the stronger you are, the more force you're able to put in the ground. The more force you're able to put in the ground, the quicker you're going to accelerate. It's our lowest hanging fruit most of the time, especially for untrained athletes. If you listen to our last couple of podcasts, you know that until you reach that strong enough threshold, we're going to get some pretty big bang for our buck with strength training and strength development. Now, if you're a high school athlete, there's a pretty good chance, almost a 99% chance, I'd say, that you have not reached that strong enough threshold and continuing to get stronger is still going to give you a pretty high ROI. But we need to make sure that the strength that we get in the weight room is actually transferable to the field. The more specific, per se, that we can make it, the more it's going to translate. And what I mean by that is we want to choose lifts that are going to develop strength strength in positions that are similar to those that we get into on game day. So things like split squats, where you end up with a position that's pretty representative of a two-point acceleration position or a deceleration position, that's going to transfer pretty well. Things like a trap bar deadlift, where the bottom of your trap bar deadlift position is going to be pretty reminiscent of your athletic position that you're going to be playing defense in, that you'd go to to do a vertical jump. Those movements, those lifts... Uh, are going to translate pretty well to strength development that actually transfers to game day performance and speed development. I'm not going to harp on this one too much because we talked about it a lot recently. So um, if you haven't listened to the last two podcasts, go ahead, get a refresher and uh, learn a little bit more about how you can use strength training to improve your performance. All right. So the next item on our list is to manage body composition. So speed is a product of relative strength. So relative strength means it's how strong are you relative to your body weight. That's juxtaposed against absolute strength, which is just a measure of how strong are you, period. How much force can you produce, period. So speed is a product of relative strength, meaning the stronger you are compared to your body weight, the faster you're going to be able to accelerate. We can manipulate this on either end of the equation. So in step one, we're increasing our overall strength output, which is going to help improve that ratio. But we can also lower our body weight in order to improve that ratio. We want to make sure that our body is composed of a high level of muscle tissue, of lean muscle tissue. Muscle adds strength. So when you add muscle, you're going to get stronger. That helps improve the equation. So if you're adding weight by adding muscle, it's still going to be an overall net positive on that ratio because that muscle is able to produce strength. But if you're adding adipose tissue, if you're adding fat, 
then that's not going to be able to improve your strength output, but it is going to increase your body weight. So that negatively impacts that ratio. The single best way to manage your body composition, the thing that's going to give you the biggest bang for your buck, is going to be locking in your nutrition. We can't out-train a bad diet. I know it's a super corny saying, but it's really true. There's nothing that you can do in the weight room, um, no extra conditioning that you can do that's going to alter what you do the other 23, 22 hours of the day um, that's going to alter what you put into your body. You need to make sure that your nutrition is locked in. And what locked in looks like is going to be different for each person. This is where you want to get in with somebody who really knows what they're talking about. Talk to a high-level registered dietitian to make sure you're consuming what you're supposed to consume. Make sure you're doing it safely. Make sure you're doing it appropriately. um, And make sure you're doing it to optimize performance. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that there's absolutely such a thing of having too low body fat. We need to make sure we monitor body composition, um, but we want to make sure that we treat it as a Goldilocks situation. We don't want to go too high and we don't want to go too low. The recommended ranges are for males between 10 and 22% and for females between 20 and 32%. Females are naturally going to have higher levels of body fat. Um, That's just the way puberty works, so we need to make sure we respect that. Um, this is especially pertinent for females. Uh, we see females go too far on the body fat loss spectrum. They're chasing a standard that's just not healthy for them, uh, but it's relevant for males as well. If you get too low in the body fat uh, spectrum, then your body begins to suffer. You're going to have uh, impaired immune function. You're going to have imp- impaired hormonal function. This is going to impact your performance, your overall long-term health. So make sure that you're doing this uh, under the care of a qualified professional. Yes, having lean body composition is important for speed development, but no, it's not worth it to sell out at all costs and sacrifice your health, which is definitely going to impact your performance as well. All right, so next up on our list, number three is to develop horizontal power. And this is one of my favorites because pretty much no matter where you're at along the athlete development timeline, if you're looking to improve speed performance, if you're looking to improve acceleration, investing in developing horizontal power is going to give you a pretty high ROI. So when we're looking to accelerate, we're looking to go out, not up. We want to go forward, not vertical. So we need to take all the force that we're learning how to produce in the weight room, all the power that we're learning how to produce, and we need to learn how to put it into the ground backwards so that we can go forward. We need to learn how to produce that force horizontally. So Newton's third law comes into play significantly here. Newton's third law tells us that for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So what that means is that however hard we push into the ground, the ground pushes us that hard, equal amount. Whatever direction we push into the ground, the ground pushes us out in the exact opposite direction. So if we push straight down into the ground, then the ground is going to push us straight up. If we push backwards into the ground, then the ground's going to push us out. So the shin angle is a really good proxy for however we're pushing into the ground. If your shin is straight up and straight down, there's a pretty good chance that you're going to push straight down into the ground, which means you're going to get a ground reaction force that pushes you straight up, and you're going to stand straight up out of the beginning. We've all pretty much heard some track coach or some coach yelling at us when we are coming out of the start that we need to stay low. We need to make sure we come out. We don't stand straight up. This is what they're talking about here. We want that shin angle to be horizontal, meaning we want that shin to be going forward whenever we're trying to accelerate out. So all the weight should be in your big toe. 
that shin should be going forward from the heel to the knee. You should be a, able to see a pretty steep incline there. Um, so that way you can actually put force backwards into the ground. If your shin is straight up and straight down, it's almost impossible to be able to put force backwards. And so you need to make sure that shin's going forward so you have the biomechanical predisposition to be able to put force backwards into the ground. So that's the horizontal aspect of it. The power development standpoint is that we need to be able to produce force at high speed. So the formula for power is force times velocity or it's work divided by time. There's two physical equations for it. Um, but we're trying to produce a lot of force and trying to do it at high speeds. And so um, sprinting obviously entails both of those. You have ridiculously high forces that are involved and you have to produce them ridiculously fast. So we need to be able to produce a lot of power. We need to be able to orient it in a horizontal direction. All right, for the X's and O's, the tactics, the ways that we actually attack this, the ways we actually get better at this, um, the number one way, the absolute cheat code is sled sprinting. Uh, I feel like this in my lifetime has felt like the uh, midwit meme that's gone around in 2023. So on one end of the spectrum, you have um, what they're calling a moron, a very low IQ individual. In the middle of the timeline, we have a uh, mid IQ individual or a midwit. And on the far right, we have a genius. And the gist of the joke, the gist of the meme is that the moron and the genius always have the same simple idea where the midwit in the middle always has this super complicated um explanation for whatever they're trying to talk about and so for this one when I didn't have any clue what I was doing I would sled sprint all the time I loved sled sprinting I just felt like it made me faster and so um, that was whenever I was in my moron phase sled sprints were great as I learned more about exercise science, I learned more about strength and conditioning, sports performance, physical therapy. I had all of these complicated ideas. Um, I had all these intricate philosophies on speed training. It was using a lot of technical jargon. And I feel like I've gone to the other end of the spectrum where I'm just like, bro, just sled sprint. Uh, it is an absolute cheat code. If you want to develop better acceleration as a high school athlete, sled sprinting is a phenomenal way to do it. And the reason for that is that sled sprinting puts you into those horizontal positions because you have a weight that is pulling you back. You're going to just naturally, instinctually lean forward and get those horizontal shin angles that we're looking for. So it puts you in those horizontal positions, but then it loads you up and you are overloaded from a force standpoint, so you have to produce more power. Um, it is a phenomenal tool to develop horizontal power. I definitely prefer having a sled that has a waistband so that way the resistance is more natural. It's right in line with your center of mass as opposed to a shoulder strap. Now the shoulder strap stuff will work out fine. Um, the prowler pushes where you put your hands on it again, it's fine, but it's not optimal the best way in my opinion. Um, if we're just looking to prove acceleration capacity, then the sleds with the waistband are ideal. In addition to that, things like skips and bounds play a significant role in horizontal power development. Um, so we want to incorporate things like repeat broad jumps, power skips for distance where you're um, doing a power skip. So just your normal skipping rhythm that you've been doing since you were a little kid, but now you try to get as far as you can each and every step. Um, that's a great way to train that horizontal power. You have to learn how to produce force backwards in the ground to gain distance. Um, 
Yeah, so uh, those right, right, left, lefts, where we go from your right leg, jump to your right leg, straight into your left leg, to your left leg, right, right, left, left, repeatedly, where you're trying to get out as far as you can and as quick as you can. Uh, we'll do hopscotch for distance, where we have you jump off of one foot, land on two feet, then jump straight from two feet to your left foot, then straight from your left foot to your two feet to your right foot. Um, so you're playing hopscotch, but you're trying to get out as far as you can and trying to get out as quick as you can. Um, so things like that where you're trying to produce a lot of force and trying to gain a lot of distance are going to, or you're trying to produce a lot of force, you're trying to gain a lot of distance, and you're trying to do it really quickly. That's an important component I forgot there. You're trying to do it at a high speed. Um, those are going to translate well to horizontal power development and improve your sprint performance. Number four on our list is to improve foot and ankle strength and stiffness. Now, the foot and ankle is what interfaces with the ground. All the force that we produce during acceleration normally originates at the more proximal, meaning more center levels. And so your big muscles like your glutes, your hamstrings, your quads, they produce a lot of the force and then they transmit it down to your foot and ankle. But if you have a weak foot and ankle that's not very stiff, that doesn't have um, a lot of integrity, then it's going to lose efficacy whenever it goes to put that force in the ground. We already know from our last point that we need to be able to put as much force into the ground to have that ground push us forward in order to accelerate fast. We need to make sure there are no weak links in the chain. So if you have really strong glutes, really strong hamstrings, but you have floppy feet and ankles, then you're still not going to optimize your sprint performance. Stiffness is a term that's gotten a bad reputation. When people hear the word stiffness, they normally think of the lack of mobility or flexibility. It has a negative connotation to it, and that's not necessarily the case. Stiffness is not merely the opposite of mobility. What it really is, is it's the slope of the stress strain curve. It's also referred to as Young's modulus. So stiffness is how much something deforms based off of how much stress is placed upon it. So if something's really floppy, if you put a little bit of stress on it, then it's going to deform a lot. It's going to have a lot of stretch to it. If something's more stiff, it's going to have a little bit of deformation. It's going to only stretch a little bit based off of how much force you put on it. So when that applies during sprinting is we need to make sure that we have very quick ground contact time. So if your foot hits the ground and it has no stiffness to it, it's going to take a really long time for that foot to get back off the ground. And it's also going to dissipate a lot of that force that we had built up. It's not going to recoil. It's not going to have a big elastic recoil that we want to have to be able to put a lot of that force back into the ground. So we want to improve the overall stiffness while also being able to maintain getting into the positions we need to get into when we need to get into them. The good thing about being a human being is that our connective tissue, our tendons, are viscoelastic, meaning the stiffness of our tendons can change based off of how quickly that force is applied. So the quicker a force is applied, like in sprinting, that force is applied really, really fast, the stiffer a substance is going to get. 
This is one component that allows us to have a high degree of functional stiffness without sacrificing our health in the process. Tendon stiffness improves with heavy slow resistance training, and that means we really need to load up our foot, ankle, Achilles complex with heavy weights if we want to improve our stiffness. So this is another midwit situation where every gym bro across the country was doing um, single leg calf raises, and then you go do your first strength and conditioning internship, and your strength and conditioning coaches tell you that uh, calf raises are pointless, that they get more than enough of that elsewhere. And then you go to the other side and you think, hey, you know what? We actually do need to improve stiffness sometimes. So uh, some heavy, slow resistance training, like some heavy single leg calf raises or maybe some heavy toe walks or things along that nature are going to be pretty important. We also want to expose that foot ankle Achilles complex to producing high forces at really fast speeds and the best way that I've found to do that that's not actually sprinting are things like pogos. So pogos are jumps that are ankle dominant so you're trying to jump as high as you can but you're not really allowed to bend your knees. You start with a very very small amount of knee bend and then all of the movement from there on is coming from the ankle. So you're trying to get up as high as you can um, but it's all ankle dominant jumping and we'll do these single leg, we'll do these double leg, we'll do them with um, variable ground contact times. We'll do them in different body positions. Uh, but I think we pogo more than just about anybody else in the country because it has a lot of benefits. Last but certainly not least on our list is number five, compete with frequent intense sprint exposures. At the end of the day, the best way to get better at sprinting at a high level is to sprint at a high level. You certainly need to improve all of these other factors, but if you don't actually line it up and compete, whether that's with yourself, whether that's with somebody else, whether that's with a, a stopwatch, um, if you don't have a high intent, if you aren't sprinting as fast as you can on a regular basis, then you're not actually going to get better at sprinting. Charlie Francis is a coach that's well known in the speed development community. He had a lot of really good ideas that have influenced the way that uh, programming happens both within the track and field community and the strength and conditioning community. He also is probably most well known for training Ben Johnson, which puts a huge asterisk next to his name because of the doping scandal. But he does have some phenomenal quotes and he has some great ideas. Uh, one of his quotes that I really like is that uh, if you have somebody who can't touch a basketball rim, it doesn't matter how many times in a row they can't touch a basketball rim. Meaning that if we want somebody to improve their actual speed and power performance, we want them to sprint faster or we want them to jump higher, we need to train them when they're operating at 100%. We need to make sure that the outputs that we get in training are as high level as they can possibly get. If you sprint at 80% repeatedly, and I'm not talking about 80% speed when you have uh, weight on the sled, I'm talking about if you're sprinting 80% as fast as you can in that situation, then you're not going to get faster at 100%. We need the highest output that you can possibly have. And in order to pull that out of you, we really need to have some degree of competition often. Now, this isn't always true. Some people are able to really tap into 100% when it's just them, their headphones on, or just the sound of nature, and that works great. Um, but for most people, we need to line it up against somebody else and have them compete. Or we need to line it up with the lasers, with the stopwatch, and we need to have them compete in order to really pull out everything they've got and force their body to adapt to those higher speeds. So on a relatively regular basis, maybe one or two times per week, grab your buddy who's about the same speed as you, grab your dad and grab the stopwatch and go out there and sprint as fast as you can because you can't get fast training slow.
These five methods seem really simple, and that's because they are. But simplicity and ease are not the same thing. These are things that are no nonsense. They're backed up by research. They're backed up by experience. They aren't gimmicky like a lot of the stuff you see out there. These are real world ways to get faster, to actually improve your acceleration capability. And it's really simple. It's straightforward. But you have to show up on a regular basis. You have to work your tail off every single time that you do show up. And you have to have a purpose, a plan, a strategic reason for doing what you're doing or else it's not going to matter. Execute these five tips with elite consistency and intensity, you will get faster and you will get a leg up on your competition. But that's up to you to show up regularly and put the work in. All right, so that's it for this conversation. Feel free to reach out to me at Zach at gtperformance.co if you have any questions or there's anything I can help you out with. If you found any of this helpful today, it would be much appreciated if you could rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. But until next time, be greater than. Yeah, straight A student, but I'm friends with the cool kids. Following the rules and the rubric. Freestyle on the bus and it's too late.